You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience on this fine day, Wednesday afternoon, February 7th. And no, this is not David Horowitz or Richard Horowitz, the inspector general of the FBI. This is Daniel Horowitz, I guess the de facto inspector general of every federal agency and Congress doing the jobs that, uh, Americans or illegal aliens won't do to actually hold the Republican Party accountable, to hold our government accountable for representing Americans, for representing our market system, our constitution, for the forgotten men and women of this country who are U.S. citizens. They're not illegal aliens. They're not some sort of concocted protected class, and they don't want to be subsidized, but they don't want to be regulated either. They don't want to get a handout for health care. They're willing to pay a few thousand dollars a year for their needs, a few thousand dollars more for a worse year where they can contract with their own doctor and go to the place where they want like any other functioning market, not having to pay twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to subsidize an insurance cartel and a hospital cartel under the guise of uh, some sort of uh, you know pseudo- ethos of charity. Folks, I got a lot to talk about today, and there's no way to sugarcoat this. I'm in a really bad mood. Maybe it's just reflected in this gloomy uh, weather here. But um, we are getting hosed beyond imagine. This is like political rape, what is taking place. And I'm not even bothered by Republicans. Republicans are being who they are. They're for big government. They're for open borders. They they love Obamacare and Medicaid and all this stuff, despite their campaign promises. We knew that. I guess what I'm annoyed about is the opportunities, what could be, that it doesn't have to be this way. And the fact that there's no conservative movement outside of Congress and even the conservative in, conservatives in Congress getting together to provide a counter-narrative to everything these bastards are doing on spending, debt, big government and healthcare cartel programs they're renewing, and amnesty, and just sitting there passively doing who knows what. And I seem to be one of the only ones willing to talk about this. I don't want to poo-poo the FBI scandal. I spoke about it last time. There's plenty to talk about with that. But as I spoke about in last podcast, that was number 189, this is episode 190, there's a broader picture to learn and to glean from the FBI scandal. Everything going on in our government is one big FBI scandal, meaning that it doesn't represent the people. We don't have representation. We have autonomous agencies that are influenced by cartels, whether it's the military defense industry complex, the health care cartel, all the special interests running the show rather than full oversight from Congress over all the agencies with the people watchfully looking over them, representing the entirety of the people of the citizenry. 
basically what's the sum total, and we're going to get into, I have so much to talk about, we're going to try to do a lightning round of all the betrayals and all the issues taking place, what should be done, but instead what they are doing. And particularly, not only is the GOP Congress screwing us in every issue, but they're doubling down on the very policies in each issue portfolio that caused the problems to begin with. Both parties should change their national symbols to that of a, of a firefighter engaging in arson. See, if you're a non-illegal alien U.S. citizen who doesn't want a handout, just a fair chance in a free market, you don't exist to either party. All that matters are either foreign nationals, special interests, cartels, protected classes of people, or Americans who want handouts and programs and don't want the prosperity. They don't want the opportunity for all and the favoritism for none. That is the political system we are now living through. And I'm bothered by the fact that nobody is even talking about any of this stuff. So let's go down one, one by one and start with the grand budget betrayal. Let's start off with immigration before we get to the budget betrayal. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we'll get to it next week. Uh, the budget betrayal is the more imminent need to get to get up to speed on and, and voice our opinions about. But I want you to... In general, I think just everything we discussed today is so foundational to understanding the way our political system works. If you want to know what embodies the Republican Party and its leadership, let me read to you something from Mitch McConnell. Next week, they're going to tackle immigration. Now, you see, when the Democrats control Congress and they say they're going to tackle something on the agenda, it means that they're going to tackle it from their perspective, their special interest, their party platform, and they're going to you know, cut your throat, cut your heart out, chew it up, and put it back in in order to pursue those goals. Here's what it means when Republicans are in charge of Congress, when they're in charge of the Senate. Mitch McConnell said he will not use an immigration bill as the starting point for the Senate's debate on the issue. The bill I will move to will not have any underlying immigration text. It will be blank and will have an amendment process that will ensure a level playing field at the outset. And then he said, whoever gets 60 votes wins. Th that should be the autobiography of Mitch McConnell. Whoever gets 60 votes wins. It's amazing how it was just two weeks ago I wrote a piece, and, and very seriously, even though I knew he wouldn't follow through with it, saying how Mitch McConnell could be a statesman, how he could use the opportunity we have now from just the growing economy, um, you know, but Trump's polling numbers are, are really on the rise, the success of the tax cuts, the Democrats just having a meltdown. Uh, likely the entire Russia scandal unfolding or unraveling, how he has an opportunity to be a statesman. And to finally, you know, not, not do some of the things you and I always want to do that all, oh, God forbid, he can do because of his special interests, but, but to do things that are almost universal among Republicans and, you know, do something about the 60-vote threshold, um, some filibuster reform, and start passing really, I mean, really universal stuff that, that are 80-20 winning issues. And we, we have a panoply of issues here from immigration and, and um, welfare reform, guns, 
going after the ethanol cartel, true free market healthcare reforms that even skirt the whole issue of repealing Obamacare, a lot of things he could do. Right? No, you know, are, they're not too hard. Any party that actually had an agenda would would do this. Right? It's, 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 it's very simple. And I noted at the time that in order to do that, Mitch McConnell would have to change his modus operandi. And now you might ask, well, what is Mitch McConnell's modus operandi? Well, you're probably going to say, well, being a sellout. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of one thing. Um, but th- there's something a lot deeper to what Mitch McConnell does. A lot deeper. It's not just the sellout. What he does is he acts as if he's a parliamentarian, some sort of neutral arbiter, almost like a floor man, like a you know the guy calling the balls and strikes on procedures. Well, we're going to hold some votes. We'll have some amendments. We'll have an open process. Well, Mitch, what do you believe in? And you know we noted at the time that that would require Mitch McConnell to finally become the Senate majority leader, just like. Harry Reid was when he was the majority leader, just like Chuck Schumer is in the minority, and he would be and might will be if he's in the majority. You're the leader of your party. You passionately speak to the values of your issues. You take a position, very much so. You lead the position. You lead your soldiers into battle. And when people get out of line, you whip them. That's why it's called the number two position. It's called the Senate Majority Whip. The reason why you have so many Collins and Murkowskis and Corkers and Portmans and Lamar Alexanders is because McConnell's like, hey, you guys do what you want. I'll hold the floor open and we'll see whoever wins. So, I mean, this guy should come there with Republican priorities on immigration. When I say Republican, I mean the GOP platform, not what they really stand for. But no, he says whoever gets the 60 wins. Well, gee, when you have... Every Democrat and more than half of Senate Republicans supporting amnesty, it's going to be amnesty that wins, not reforming chain migration and enforcement. And as much as I disagree with the president's proposal, at least introduce that as the base bill and say, this is my position. This is a we've compromised enough. I will give you amnesty, a bigger amnesty, but here's what you got to do. And. You know, done, take it or leave it, and whip your members. Call Susan Collins into your office and say, wait a minute, you're getting your amnesty now. Now it's time to adopt the Republican Party platform or leave. No, he never does that, because quietly he has no problem with amnesty anyway. He really does take a position in the background because of the Chamber of Commerce. But that's what we're missing here. So the guy's literally introducing a blank page with no text on it and saying, hey, guys, Submit your amendments and whichever one gets 60 wins. That is the embodiment of Mitch McConnell and the GOP. Democrats will cut your heart out to fight for their position. Republicans will be like, let's have a blank bill and see which amendment wins. I I just felt you guys need to hear that's a teachable moment. But we got a lot to cover. We'll cover immigration more next week. Let's move on to the budget betrayal. 
So there's two layers of the budget betrayal. There's the short-term funding bill because the funding runs out again Friday night. And then there's what they're trying to forge is a two-year agreement on budget caps, overall spending, and many, many other provisions, particularly related to health care. And this is where we are getting hosed on budget and health care. So for the short-term thing, Republicans have uh, introduced the CR, and the House already voted on it Tuesday, Tuesday evening, to extend the government funding for another six weeks into late March. And our expectations have been dumbed down so much, the soft bigotry of low expectations in the conservative movement, that not putting amnesty in it is like a victory. God forbid should we actively have defunding Planned Parenthood and defunding sanctuary cities and any of our health care priorities. No, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You know, codifying the president's um, administrative policies on funding for the PLO and Pakistan. I mean, I'm just, you could open up your imagination to different things we should be doing in a budget. No, 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 you can't do that. Like, all right, fine. So they're not going to do, do good things, but we'll have a clean CR. Even in the short-term bill, before we get into the massive $300 billion, which will, which will grow into about $500 billion um, increase in spending, in the long-term agreement that they're making, just the six-week CR, they increased spending by $12 billion. What did they do? They stuck in healthcare programs, bailouts for the cartel. Now, I didn't even get into all of them. I haven't even had time to look into all of them. But let's just talk about two of them. So remember how Republicans in the last bill extended S-chip for six years. And not a lot of people have been focusing on it, but it's very important. <clears throat> and again, very much a teachable moment. Because you think, all right, Republicans don't have the guts to really wean people off dependency and promote an agenda of opportunity for all, favoritism for none. We're not going to overtax, overregulate, distort your markets, but we're not going to subsidize you. No. When, when, God forbid they should ever pursue that agenda. But you think, okay, at least if they're going to agree to grow government and create more robust dependency programs, they'll get rid of the initial program. So if you have a 10% program and now you're replacing with a 90, well, you'll get rid of the 10 and you'll do the 90. No. They will not, they will leave no government program behind. So if you want to leverage S-chip to say, all right, we'll keep it, but now we're repealing Obamacare, at least significantly repealing Obamacare, that's one thing. No, that's not what they do. They say, we're going to keep S-chip, we're not going to have any reforms, at least more state flexibility, you know, some of the BS reforms, which whatever, rather than abolishing it, um, no, none of that. Six-year reauthorization at the levels of expansion over and beyond the original expansion that Bush vetoed and said it was too much. Big spending Bush vetoed it. But it's worse. There's something called Obamacare, in case you haven't noticed. Republicans won't repeal it. Right? That is for sure. They will not touch the subsidies. I mean, that is 100%. So the subsidies work until 400% of the poverty level. S-chip, for the most part, 
goes up to about 300% of the poverty level for the children. And some states have it as high as 400% for you know their formulas. But either way, pick, pick one. If you're going to have S-chip, then don't have the Obamacare exchanges. If you have the Obamacare exchanges, don't have S-chip. Nope, we're going to keep both. And by the way, in the long-term agreement, this is not in the new CR, but in the long-term agreement we're going to talk about in a minute, they agreed to tack an extra four years on to make a 10-year reauthorization. So you don't even strive for a moment in a time where maybe you could do better, get more seats, and have some reforms. No, here it is, blank check. So there's that. So they've already done that. But in a similar vein of continuing, meaning not only are they keeping Obamacare, not only do they plan to bail out and further entrench the insurance cartel and their monopoly to gouge us, those of us who aren't being subsidized through Obamacare. And by the way, even those who are subsidized, we're, we're not even talking, talking about the quality of healthcare delivery, the, the strain on the doctors, the narrowing of the networks. So, you know, I mean, that's the joke. Insurance is not access. You know, you could throw everyone on Medicaid, but so many people aren't taking Medicaid anymore. But that's a whole other discussion. But anyway, not only are they doing that, they're keeping codifying and expanding the programs that even the framers of Obamacare intended to lapse. Like I said, S-CHIP was intended to lapse by the Obamacare framers by 2015. But no, they expanded it in 2015, and now they're reauthorizing it for another 10 years. There's something else called dish payments that they stuck in $5 billion for in this clean CR. DSH, um, Disproportionate Share Hospital Payments. What, basically, what it's designed to do is um, compensate hospitals for unpaid for care. You know, the unfunded liability of EMTALA, which is the law that you can't turn people away, where you basically have mainly in the emergency room a lot of illegal aliens, which should be dealt with through, you know, immigration policy, obviously. And, you know, anyone else, the indigent care that at the end of the day, they somewhat serve as a nonprofit in that sense. So you always had dish payments. That, that was the government compensating them for that unfunded liability. But something happened. See, just like Obamacare, the so-called private exchange subsidies were supposed to replace S-CHIP. So the Medicaid expansion was supposed to replace DISH because Medicaid expansion has become an insanely massive cash cow for, um, for, for hospitals, for the big hospital conglomerates. And by the way, when I say hospitals, when I say hospitals here, I don't mean, you know, your country hospital. I mean the fact that you now have healthcare administrator conglomerates that, you know, very few of them own the majority of the hospital. So it's one big cartel. And again, the free market didn't build that. It's the subsidies that built it for them. It's the statutory loopholes and tilting of the regulatory and statutory regime towards them that has favored the big healthcare conglomerates that, that do it. So it's not like, you know, hospitals, physicians are barred from owning hospitals, yet these conglomerates could do whatever the heck they want. So um, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the deal here. That's kind of the deal. 
they are continuing it despite getting Medicaid expansion. And basically, they were supposed to dramatically cut back the dish payments. But by hook or by crook, they've never really been doing it. Trump's threatened to do it. And now Congress is reinstating $5 billion worth. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Hospital, hospitals cannot have it always, period. They can't have the best of a for-profit, the best of a not-for-profit, and the best of a public utility. Something's got to give. Here, here's what they have in their – here's the aces in the hole that they have. They pay no taxes. They're tax-exempt. They earn record profits, but then they don't take them and use them for indigent, indigent care or helping out rural hospitals that are struggling. That's a whole other discussion. They use the regulatory structure to box out competition, mainly through state-oriented uh, um, certificates of, of note. Uh, certificates of need, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting that for a minute. This is on a state level, not a federal level, where they basically have hospital cartel AMA members being elected to these panels, not elected, appointed to these panels to go and box out competition. You have the Obamacare law that everyone forgot, the aspect of it that barred physician-owned hospitals. They have Medicaid expansion, which is just a massive cash cow that's much larger than the unpaid-for care that they provided that they still get reimbursed for. And then they run ads with all the government money they got where most of their money comes from government. They run ads on Super, you know, on uh, on Super Bowl night for their hospitals. And then um they use Medicare and Medicaid to price fix with the insurance cartel. You know, these are the two levels. You got the hospital cartel and the insurance cartel, much like a, a drug ring. And they engage in price fixing and have no price transparency. At some point, and this is such a populist winning issue, but it's a free market populist issue. Republicans have this amazing opportunity to stand before the American people and stand for the consumer and say, wait a minute, fish are cut bait. If you want to be a for-profit industry and have cranes, you know, you all see it with the big urban hospitals, cranes and construction, they're flush than ever with, more than ever with Medicaid expansion. Then do it on your own dime. Then do it on your own dime. What to do about indigent care? I'll get to that in a minute. That's going to tie into the next item here. But be for profit, fine. No Medicaid, no, Medi- no, no, no subsidies, fine. But pay taxes then. Then you got to pay taxes. If you want to be a steward, if you don't, if you want to not pay taxes, as if to say you're a steward of the public good, you're not trying to earn a profit, which you are earning record profits. So then you have to operate like a not-for-profit. You have to then, okay, you're right. Then we're going to give you the Medicaid. We're going to give you the dish payments. You're not going to have to pay taxes. Fine. But then you have to operate like any other public utility in which you have to redistribute the profits to the failing hospitals. You have to uh, then, in addition to that, you have to stop wasting money on ads. That's, That's number two. And then on top of everything, if you're a steward of the public good, you need to have price transparency and stop 
price fixing with the insurance cartel. You should be subject to the antitrust laws everyone, every other industry is. You can't have it always. I understand if there's the unfunded liability, you deal with that. But they have they can't have it four or five different things going for that. But Republicans are reauthorizing DISH with no reforms, no narrative. And by the way, I have a whole article. I'm, I'm going to be listing a lot of reforms, but four reform ideas on healthcare. We don't have time to get into that. But one of the ideas, one of the things that bothers me is what people don't understand about Medicare and Medicaid, Medicaid in particular, is it's not just that they're extremely expensive. Medicare is something like pushing $700 billion dollars. Medicaid combined state and federal is pushing $600 billion. It's going to go to a trillion dollars within a few years. It's going to skyrocket. Um, it's not just the expense. It's that they destroy health care in America. They hurt everyone else and including the people who get them because of the delivery and the quality. The best practices in health care don't prevail like the best practices in E-commerce, like with Amazon and Walmart and Uber and Apple. Because the government cuts the consumer out. If Medicaid would only run, run like food stamps, where you give them the money, as much money as you want. I'm not even debating the amount. Of, so, so give them the $600 billion, Spend the full $600 billion. Get 70 million people hooked on it. Let's shake on that. But just give it to them, and therefore they could use the money to purchase their own, any unregulated plan, health sharing, a mixture of that with DPC, concierge, and they'd have enough money to pay that plus the out-of-pocket if they're indigent. And everyone else, leave them the hell alone. What that would do is it would cut the entire price-fixing cartel. They use the Medicare and Medicaid contracts to price fix, no program designed to help the poor or seniors should be used to hurt everyone else and to grant a cartel a monopoly to gouge the citizenry and gouge a consumer. But that's what they do. If you take Medicare and Medicaid, which is almost any anyone because you can't, I mean, that's, that is the consumer until we change that. You cannot, you're prohibited from offering self-pay discounts. <clears throat> That's why you don't have a revolution in, in self-pay and shopping around and price transparency because there are no prices. They're set in the back room with these contracts, these long-term contracts. But government has, has the right to come in and say, wait a minute, if you're a Medicare, Medicaid provider, which is most of them, you, we are barring all contract clauses that prohibit self-paid discounts. That's number one. Number two, there's something called facility fees. If you've noticed, we talked about this before, if you've noticed, there's an entire industry of healthcare administrative conglomerates buying up healthcare. They control healthcare. And monopolies are never good things. Monopolies are never good things. Now, and that's even when they're created, you know, somewhat by the free market, which is pretty rare. But, you know, you have them once in a while. And, you know, we're, we're taught to think that they're just evil. 
But somehow what's not evil is a government-created monopoly. What Medicaid expansion has done is particularly – I mean it was like this before, but Medicaid ex expansion really, really exacerbated it um, – is that they pay hospitals, physicians and hospitals get higher reimbursement rates for the same things done by a private practice. That giant sucking sound you hear away from private practice where they're almost abolished. You have no sole practices anymore. Um, they're all, you know, doctors have to join together. And even a lot of them are being bought up by the conglomerates. And then certainly all the hospitals are owned by very few select conglomerates. That is all because of facility fees. They pay facility fees. Now, again, if the free market would dictate that the quality of care in the hospitals is so much better, although most of them it sucks because they have a monopoly and they don't have to produce better quality like our friend Dr. Smith um, of the Oklahoma Surgery Center. He's innovated. Hospitals have been shielded from innovation because there is no consumer. There is no competition. It's of, by, and for the government insurance hospital conglomerate conglomerate health administrator cartel. So the same doctors get paid more money in working for hospitals. All the talent is being sucked out to them. Look, if free market innovation would dictate this, I'm not going to sit and cry over nostalgia of, um, you know, Oh, in the old days, you had your private practice. You know, if that's the way the future, like ATMs versus bank tellers, fine. But that's not the way of the future. That's not the free market. It's not innovation and better delivery and better pricing, competitive service that's dictating that. It's the damn government doing it. This, folks, is venture socialism for you. Imagine if we had a Republican Party and a Freedom Caucus even speaking to this, but they don't. They play small ball. They pay, play small ball. Stupidity. Nothing. So in addition to this, one more thing on health care they had in this bill was another $7 billion for community health centers. Now again, I'll be the first to tell you, this gets back to what I was saying before, if we abolished Medicaid and we abolished S-CHIP, and we abolished Obamacare, and we abolished all of the tendentious favors for the insurance cartel and had free market health care, then yes, there's a lot of innovative ideas. I actually like the concept of government-funded community health centers, albeit it should be done on a state and local level, each tailor-made to its community, not on a federal level. But the concept is actually better. It's better to have just straight up a hand. I always say in healthcare, the best way to give a handout, like I was saying with my Medicaid reform, is to give a handout, not to empower a monopoly of an insurance cartel to screw over everyone. Um, you will always want to isolate and minimize the problem. You want to have two pools. You want to separate out chronically ill and um, indigent and deal with that separately and just deal with it. It's much cheaper. It's much more efficient. It doesn't kill the entire healthcare market. So have your community healthcare centers. I actually like the idea. But again, the problem is there's no need for it if you're going to subsidize everything. So pick one or the other. If you're going to 
seriously do some of our reforms, I'll I'll increase spending for health, health for community health centers. Again, I'd rather it be done on a on a state and local level where it should be. But at least use it as leverage. Say, all right, you want Democrats, you want two two more years reauthorized of community health centers. Here's what we want in return: some of the aforementioned reforms. But no, so that's the healthcare betrayal. In addition, there's a parallel agreement to bail out Obamacare with the reinsurance program, but you knew that already. The crux of the agreement is this. The crux of the agreement of the budget deal is they planned to they, they're planning to bust the budget caps by 300 billion. Now this does not include now, it's, it's just over two years, not a 10-year, but usually when you hear these figures, it's 10 years, it's two years. That means that the numbers are going to explode in the out years because that means that the Budget Control Act is done with. So it's, it's when they say two years, it's misleading. We're not suddenly going to go back to the BCA in FY2020. No, we're, we're done with it. $300 billion, that doesn't include the 80 to $100 billion they want in the disaster funding, the Puerto Rico bailout, which will be a separate thing, and um, – the porculous infrastructure, which is a whole other thing that needs to be done by the states. Also, we need to abolish the federal gas tax. We'll talk about that when that issue blows up more. Doesn't include the stupid Ivanka care, paid family leave they want to do. So this is going to be hundreds of billions more when even before it, we're approaching trillion-dollar deficits back to where we were at the, at the highest level of Obama's profligate spending. And by the way, at least to Obama's credit, I mean, not credit, he was wrong, but at least to his defense, that was the worst economic crisis in who knows how long where he had his new deal. Republicans are doing this during the time of economic boom when they, boom, when they could easily say, look, you know, there's such great job opportunities. Let's go and take it. We don't need dependency. But no. No. God forbid should they ever do that. $300 billion. What you're not going to hear from anyone which I've written you know, extensively about and I've spoken on a, a lot about under this microphone, is the problem with the so-called defense hawks who aren't even defense hawks. They're not true defense hawks. That they're allowing their mind-numb, vac- vapid, just increased defense spending by a tremendous amount, tremendous amount, tremendous amount, and giving the Democrats leverage to say, all right, you want that? Well, you have to have what they call parity, dollar-for-dollar increases in non-defense spending. So the agreement was to increase defense spending by about $170 billion and non-defense spending by about $130 billion. Many of the very wasteful programs that Trump promised to cut will now be increased. All under the guise of the military. But here's the problem with the military. As you guys already know, It's a policy problem. It's a strategic vision problem. It's a wasteful Pentagon problem. All that together, more so than a spending figure issue. Now, after Obama's destruction, we might want to increase spending a little bit. But if you got rid of the $45 billion a year Afghanistan dumpster fire, among many other things, we could start with that. We could start with by auditing the Pentagon. Or at least if you're too scared to hold up the spending, at least get an agreement. Okay, let's get a formal audit that will have teeth in it. We'll give you the money now, but at least in the long term, have long-term reforms. No, nothing, nothing. Defense hawks need to understand 
that this is the linchpin to why we never cut non-defense spending, because they have us around the neck with this. But even without that, there's when we are sending, and this is in the news today, when there's news that the nine M1 Abrams tanks fell into the hands of the Iranians, that $800, billion, $800 million from the Pentagon was lost in an audit and they can't account for, and there's probably a lot more where that comes from. When what we are doing in Afghanistan, the special inspector general is blowing up every lie, lie after lie. We, we have a much bigger problem than spending figures. See, there's one thing if you're like, look, Daniel, we, we got to rebuild the military. We, we, we need the money. But then they were pedal to the metal, these same so-called defense hawks, fighting the transgender agenda, fighting the women in combat agenda and the social engineering, the anti-religious lib- bigotry in the military. The core mission of the military, doing a strategic audit of what are we doing in all these places, reorienting our mission, thinking of our military inventions the way we should be thinking about healthcare, rethinking our failed assumptions, moving more towards what actually affects us, putting our interests first, using enemies against each other to our benefit rather than having multiple enemies play us against ourselves. And actually coming up with an America first, you know, strike and maneuver when you, when you need and then get out. It's these heavy-handed, long-term Islamic urban renewal projects that are so expensive, more so than, these, than the strike and, and maneuver. That's what costs all the money because, frankly, those are the meat grinders that are untenable and no mission and no way of doing anything that get our people killed and injured. And, you know, a lot of people forget in addition to th- – there's three legs to military spending that, that they don't want to talk about. There's the base defense numbers, but then there's the OCO, the Overseas Contingency Operation, the actual mission. And by the way, that's ranging from about 80 to $90 billion a year. So right there is your money. That's the money. Just you should use that all for base defense and end most of this garbage. And then you tell the Democrats, hey, drop dead. We'll use the funding right here. And then um, – cut waste in the, in, in the Pentagon, cut the military down. I don't mean the military troop size and the hardware. I mean cut their mission down to what they should be doing, and you'll solve at least most of the spending problem. And then now, hey, now you have no leverage over us. You know, Steny Hoyer, the Democrat leader in the uh, – or whip in the House, he said blatantly, this is our leverage. This is our leverage over Republicans. We know they badly wanted the, the, the increased defense spending. So this is what's fueling it all. But there's so much stuff, there's so many problems with what we're doing foreign policy-wise that should be treated as a standalone. So I would respect these defense hawks if they addressed it. But no, they don't give a damn when they, they wrap themselves in the flag. But aside from spending figures, they just don't care. I'm not seeing anyone speak to these problems. There's something wrong after 17 years in Afghanistan. Which gets me to another thing that really, really irks me. I find it so offensive. Really offensive. I mean, it just, it just, I'm seeing stars when I see it. They had a whole get together. General Votel, you know, the head of CENCOM. And all his, uh, you know, the same people have failed us 
in Afghanistan forever. They, they were saying, look, we're going to have a new strategy. We're going to have more firepower and better rules of engagement. And I jumped out of my seat. Now, let's put aside for a moment the fact that the problem with Afghanistan is not the, the force. It's what are you doing? You have a 21-way civil war in untenable topography where there's just nothing to do there. That that's the twelve hundred year lesson. It doesn't doesn't. I mean, unless you kill every single person there and their constituencies, I mean, there's nothing you can do. I mean, believe me, the Russians when they were there, the Russians have no problems with rules of engagement. It's not the issue. The issue is in places like Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq. All you could do is if we identify a serious threat, you eliminate it and leave. You strike and maneuver. Truth be told, most of what's going on in Afghanistan, or not all of it, won't affect us anyway, other than getting involved, getting our guys killed, and then feeling guilty, and then bringing in a record number of Afghanis. Most counterintuitive policy you could ever imagine. But, you know, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, they're not like, you know, Japan was, like Germany. It doesn't work that way. You know, where such a statement would work is, let's say the Russians invaded Bulgaria. It's an ally, you know, stable, you know, European country. And um, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, yay or nay, you know, hypothetically get involved in a war or whatever. I'm just saying that's where it would be appropriate to say, man, full force, full force. Because that's a conventional thing. You kick the Russians out. You leave nothing on the table to defeat them. And then you remove the malignancy you have left. The initial country and it's people and you stand them back up on their two feet here it doesn't work that's the enduring lesson of the last 17 years particularly the four-year surge from 09 to 2013 when we lost a thousand men men um thousands more injured 140,000 coalition troops there and the taliban control everything nothing to do there but what I find even more offensive, so much more offensive, is this is a self-indictment of these very same generals. So you mean to tell me that until now, we had suicidal rules of engagement? I never remember any of them speaking out under Obama raising a peep when many of us pointed this out. Never. Votel, Nicholson, Mattis, never heard it. Never heard it. Suddenly now, because they need to justify the racket, the status quo perpetuating, and this is what we talked about with the Federal Reserve and, and with the FBI, that when it becomes insular and Congress no longer engages in oversight, exactly what the founders didn't want. When, when they self-perpetuate, they always have to come up with an excuse. It becomes an institution for itself. You know, Rush Limbaugh used to always say, before he got off track, he used to eloquently talk about the stupid peace process. And he used to make fun of it and say, I want to work for the peace process when I get older. You know, like, it's become a whole institution in and of itself. How does this affect the peace process? The peace process, it became an end to itself. And no one ever questioned, well, should we even be pursuing this? And is it in our interest? And isn't it, like, the opposite of in our interest? But no, it... it it's a mission, and you've got to fulfill it. And that's what they've sucked our military into, 
and our you know brave soldiers you know god bless them they get you know they're they're you know you always want to fulfill a mission but what if your government gives you a phony mission that you can that there's nothing to do with what happens is they have to justify so like no no, no this is different rules of engagement and it's very sinister because it plays off of Trump's emotions because Trump likes that, and rightfully so. But what Trump doesn't understand is that he, he looks at the success in defeating ISIS. But the success of defeating ISIS is not the equivalent of defeating the resurgence of the Taliban. It's the equivalent of the initial kicking out of the Taliban, which was the same success. A couple hundred Green Berets and some air power, and you kick them out. Same thing here. ISIS was the easiest thing to defeat because they were different than any other terror group in the sense that they had a state. So you could break you could break stuff. You could destroy their state, and we did that. What he doesn't understand is the next phase in Syria where we're leaving our soldiers there to do, that is what we don't have an answer for. It's the day after. You could go full force and, and, and kick out uh, command and control. But what is your end game? Assuming you're on the hook for it. I don't think we should ever feel ourselves on the hook for it and just do our business and leave. But we're not doing that. That's the problem. We feel responsible for it. So then you have to explain to me which group of people in the country, reflective of which population and tribe, are you holding ground for on which territory in what sustainable fashion in what way in our national interest, in what way worth the risk versus return matrix? No one will ask that question. And this is the linchpin of our budget. But I, I want to I wanna get to one thing. You know, in Defense One website, a lot of good information there, they quote this guy, Colonel Stephen Joker Jones. Joker is his um, nickname. He flew Predator drones providing intel to B-2 stealth bombers, um, seem like a real war here, a real stand-up guy. I don't, I, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking him. I, I just want to. I'm saying this because it, it's, it's a teachable moment. Now, the article was titled "True Believers." It was talking about the true believers in Afghanistan that no matter what, they're so just robotically stuck to the mission, whatever the mission is. And and this is what they do to our military. And, and I, 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 I cry inside reading something like this because I understand it. I'm a believer, said Colonel Stephen Jones. This country has defined my career. This is what I've done my entire adult life, Jones told reporters visiting the airfield with General Votel. I'm here for a year. I fully expect to come back, and that's totally fine with me. And, and God bless him. But people like myself... People in Congress, people involved in public policy, the, the civilians of the country, the civilian leadership, that's why they didn't want military control. We have to look for the, in the whole of the country. Of course, if Afghanistan defines your life and your career, it, it becomes an attachment. It's the same thing with health care. It's all defined by the status quo, which is run by the hospital insurance cartel. Rinse and repeat for every other issue. The reason why we're screwed up is because of the force of the status quo. No one wants to change because the people involved in the various spheres of policy in their respective fields are the ones currently controlling it. So, of course, they're not going to want change. Sometimes it's very sinister and self-ingratiating. 
special interest. Sometimes it's just natural. Like you see with, you know, not even the, um, this, this is not even a general, it's a colonel. Down to some flag officers. It's defined their careers. I understand it. But we as citizens have to ask, after 17 years, hasn't everything you said you're going to do failed on a much larger scale when you had many more troops? What, what they're doing defies common sense, and they're not even answering in three sentences what you're doing other than we can't pull out. That's not an answer after 17 years. I sympathized with that. In 06, 07, 08, it went on and on. I, I, I like I, In my heart of hearts, I knew there was something wrong with Iraq and Afghanistan, but I just couldn't get off of it. And then finally, you know, the reality is just there. We don't need to, we have 17 years worth. But folks, if we got this under control, then we would be able to reorient towards building up base defense as, de- as a deterrent for the true threats and China and Russia, North Korea and Iran Instead of being totally exhausted on, on this nonsense. But I can't get anyone in or outside of government to speak to this. But that's the linchpin. People are asking me, what did conservatives get in return? Now, I know the Freedom Caucus is officially rejecting this, all this stuff I talked about. But they're rejecting this deal, but the contours and messaging and priorities, they pretty much accepted. They're not pushing a counter-narrative, a counter-agenda. And part of it is because people ask me, what did the Freedom Caucus get? What did they get? Why did they vote for the CR? I say, well, they got a vote on a long-term defense bill. Like, oh, okay. I mean, I understand. All things equal, you'd rather have a long-term funding for defense than short-term funding. But the problem with our military, as you could well see, runs a lot deeper than whether you have a short-term CR or a long-term funding bill. It's fundamentally our strategic vision, our priorities, as well as just the rotting out of the military, the politicized generals. And by the way, just one more point. These same idiots like Votel and all these guys, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Mattis that never had a word to say under Obama. So some people say, well, Daniel, maybe they were bothered by rules of engagement, but they were still active duty and they really you know, couldn't speak out. You know what's funny? When Trump wants to reinstate normalcy and get rid of the castration in the military, they actively engage in civil disobedience and say no. So they have no problem speaking out when they want to promote their licentious social engineering. That they have no problem speaking out. The generals are are the problem. You know, it, the irony of everyone focusing on DOJ and the FBI and you know how sadly not just the EPA and the State Department type of agencies we knew were rotten to the core, but even law enforcement that we we respect, but at a political level, it's been politicized. I got sad news for you. If I'm the only one willing to say it, I'll say it. The military has become the same thing over the decades. We have so many brave people sacrificing for a leadership there that's, that's a bunch of cultural Marxists. Trump promised to address it. Instead, he's elevated these people. You know, the cruel irony here is that Republicans, by abolishing the Budget Control Act, they're now undoing with all three branches of government what they accomplished with just one branch. I remember back in 2011, they, they, you know, they won the 
2010 midterm elections, smashing success. And they had a lot of leverage with just the House. And we, we forced them into it. But that was it. That was the last thing we ever got. And now they're undoing it with all three branches. And uh, th- this is the party we have. If you are a non-illegal alien U.S. citizen who doesn't want to hand out just a fair chance in a free market, you do not exist to either party. And um, and by the way, I didn't even get to the stupid paid family leave stuff with Mike Lee signing on to it. Shoot me. Um, uh, you know, just real, real briefly, you know, they're saying, well, no, it doesn't spend an extra one penny because the people who want to use federal leave that they get paid by the government, well, it comes out of their social security early. So it just goes against their social security. Dude, if you think, if you think that by creating an entirely new federal entitlement and involvement where there's no clamor aside from Ivanka to create, that somehow you're going to limit it to the appropriations of social security I got some military strategy to sell you in Afghanistan. Okay? I mean, what the heck? I, I don't, I mean, I don't, whatever. I'm getting myself into trouble here, but I, I don't get it. I just don't. And particularly, you know, pairing against Social Security is nuclear. I mean, you're going to have later on, you know, oh, are you kidding me? These people are going to lose that on Social Security. You're going to have to fix that. Um, and it's going to become a standalone. I mean, it's one thing to compromise in a, pre, in a pre-existing program and say, instead of abolishing, I'm going to kind of like play some sort of split the baby game. But to take an entirely new, new program we don't need to have at all and we shouldn't have, and say, well, Daniel, it could have been worse. We're, we're going to use the money from Social Security. You know, you pay against your own account. Well, so then give us our own accounts then. Then do Social Security reform, you know. But anyway, um, so and, and this is why we can't have nice things. You know, with rising polls, good economic news, Republicans have a historic opportunity to do so many good things on welfare, health care, systemic government reform, immigration, guns. I could go on on ethanol. That's a whole nother thing. Populist free market issues that are 80-20, like things like chain migration. There's so much that can be done to help taxpayers who don't want to hand out and just want government out of their way. The sky's the limit. Then again, they are Republicans, and perfidy is the main plank of their platform. And that's the problem. And this is why I've said before we need a new party. But even before we have a new party, we need a new movement. There's a crisis of intellect, a crisis of initiative, a crisis of policy entrepreneurship, even among the conservatives. They're not, their attention isn't focused. They're not proactive enough. We need, the Freedom Caucus was a good idea, but it was never taken to the the next level. They need a coordinated inside-outside game with outside groups and outside people to have messaging on the outside and definitive policy demands and legislative strategy pushes on the inside. And it's just, you know, like, one of the things we've been doing is you know, I'm all commentary and advocacy, but you know, some of us, like my my deputy here, Nate Madden, we're trying to also have just original reporting. You know, it's conservative reporting. We're unabashed about that. We don't make pretend like we're reporters like the New York Times are, but um, you know, just reporting kind of 
the news and we're trying to solicit statements from members like, hey, you know, comment on the budget betrayal, comment on this. And it's amazing how even many of the good ones, they don't want to do it. They don't even want to comment on it. Everyone's scared. And this is the problem. No one wants to put their head out. This is why, it, as Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village. Now, it doesn't take a village to live your life properly. It takes a family, community, but it takes a village um, to, to run a political movement. That's for sure. We need to create that. Where it's going to come from, I don't know. But anyway, I went over time. There's a lot of information packed here, as always. I mean, just on the military and healthcare, I could go on and on. But my goal is to keep you abreast. Send me notes. Email me at dharowitz at crtv.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Let me know what issues you uncovered. I, I just, I don't have the time. There's so much more I haven't even gotten a chance to uh, to broach. It's just so, so much going on. This is This is nuts. But um, thanks for your time. Thanks for indulging me. Thanks for your support. Spread the word. We need this podcast. You know, people vote with their feet. And, you know, all the kind of distraction stuff is what seems to win out in terms of the clicks. And I'm not here for clicks. I'm here to inform the citizenry so we could put pressure on the political class. That's that's what I'm here for. You know, call me your... Uh, catch-all inspector general here um that's why that's you know you guys work all day have real jobs um this is why i get paid i, I get paid the small bucks to to actually do this all day and you know i i wish i could provide more for you but you know hopefully broadcasts such as this one will be informative that you're not going to hear three quarters of this stuff anywhere else and uh, we got to spread the word but until next time god bless y'all thanks for listening